Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I had the great pleasure of speaking with Professor Brian Cox, a physicist and professor of particle physics at the University of Manchester. He's been on BBC loads, you know who he is, he's famous. It's Brian Cox, it's Brian Cox, it's Brian Cox who brought the awe and wonder of science to a mainstream audience in a way that was sort of accessible, affable, enjoyable. He's beautiful. I watched him talk and I thought he's kind of like a mystic. Even though he doesn't believe in God in the same way I believe in God, he believes very powerfully in something. His passion and warmth and genuine intrigue and awe, a subject that came up a lot, is demonstrable, visible, palpable. If you want to go and see him on tour, you should go and see him on tour. He's on tour at the moment, is Brian Cox. And I'm going to go, I think, go and see him at the O2. That'd be amazing. I'm sure there's a link in the description and you can find out about his tickets. Also, you should come and see me on tour. I'm on tour all over the gaff. God, I've got Edinburgh, Glasgow, Bristol, Bath, Hull, St. Helens, Stoke, London. There's 19 tickets left in Blackpool. And if you want them and you can't afford them, send me an email to help at russellbrand.com or hello at russellbrand.com. Put Blackpool 33 in the subject and say, you know, that you need a pair of tickets and you're poor or they no, say that you need a pair of tickets and you can't afford them and we'll sort you out if you're not subscribed to my mailing list yet please go to russellbrand.com and sign up to it and also you should register your interest for the one day event that I'm doing with Wim Hof on July the 10th we're only going to make it available to people that are subscribers to my mailing list so make sure you are one of them and perhaps you would consider becoming a volunteer because we have volunteers who answer and respond to emails and direct people towards the correct facilities and amenities you know for addiction and stuff like that do you listen to Above the Noise yet? You bloody well should. Above the Noise is a weekly guided meditation that I do here on Luminary. You've already subscribed. You're getting it for nothing. Tell me what you think of it. Go to Above the Noise now and have a little listen to a guided meditation. Here's some shout-outs from you, beautiful listeners. Listen to shout-outs. This one's from Goldris Lucina. She says, I debated whether or not to send this email. Oh, God, this is never a good start. After just finishing your recent podcast episode with Michael Singer, I felt compelled to send you this note. Whenever I come across content from you, I take my time to listen, and it's always time well spent. Your episode with Michael Singer unlocked a lot for me and even deepened my faith. Thank you. Why did you debate? That's the sort of, that's the sort of email. Send that just straight from the hip. Neri, I always listen to you on Luminary. I really appreciate you and the team for being a voice for what mainstream media would have us all forget. Yeah, we're divine. We're connected to God. We all love one another. There's limitless, unknowable and unknown stuff that's accessible to us inwardly if we're willing to undertake the practices. That's me saying that bit. We live in Australia on a farm. Cool. All of us love what you've been doing. You're really hilarious too and sometimes a breath of fresh air. I'm always a breath, aren't I? Of air, fresh or otherwise. Sarah Glass says, the episode with Yanis Varoufakis was was great and it's refreshing to hear people speaking from a place of truth i came to your show in bradford and had a really great night definitely would recommend people come and see the show well done for doing a bit of promo for me i appreciate it i've told you already there's some tickets left okay should we get into brian cox right now i don't mean in any physical actual way i mean purely in terms of listening to this is one of my favorite episodes of under the skin for a while i loved michael singer it was beautiful i love bobby roth and i tell you what i love brian cox i'm learning so much from these people i hope you are too remember to send me your comments and remember to listen to the youtube channel follow me on social media stay as close to me as you possibly can i absolutely bloody love you Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. All right, Brian, thanks for coming on, mate. Pleasure. As, as always, loved it last time. Are you... 
in America on tour explaining the cosmos to people. Yeah, currently actually in Canada, in Toronto, um, mm. which, yeah, explaining the cosmos and um, also trying to start a conversation about the meaning of the discoveries. Because as I say at the start, cosmology, I think, is a science uh, whose results transcend science because it's the study of origins and endings and we're asking questions such as even even did the universe have a beginning which we i mean we know there was this thing called the big bang but we don't know whether that was the the first moment in time even if such a question has any meaning i mean so so right at the start i say that these things i'm going to talk about should raise profound questions in your mind certainly even a philo philosophical framework that involves a, a teleology of beginning and end seems that it's derived from our animalistic understanding of our own lives it seems brian that you live at the interface with awe you know you and i've spoken several times before and i think perhaps one of the if i may be so bold one of the things that's led to your success is the apparently easy way that you communicate the information that is sort of sometimes incredibly complex but also the or that you feel within these discoveries? Why do you think it's important for people to have this understanding of the cosmos, of our origins, as uh, beyond our origins as a species, our you know our origins as a sort of system of being? What what is it that is important? And when I say important, I suppose how might it understand? How might it impact our behaviour? How might it impact our systems? This kind of understanding. Well, that's a really good question. I mean, I could, if I deal with the the practical bit first, um, I've got really interested in the writings of two of my scientific heroes, actually, Richard Feynman and Robert Oppenheimer. And they both worked on the Manhattan Project as well as all the other science that they did. Oppenheimer primarily, actually, on black holes before the war. And Feynman, after the war, he ultimately won a Nobel Prize. Um, but... In the 1950s, both of them uh, were extremely concerned that the knowledge that they had delivered to humanity, to civilization in the form of the atom bomb, uh, was such that we did well, we didn't have the wisdom to control that knowledge. That's what they felt. And th so they were very surprised that they were alive or that there were any human beings at all in the 1950s. And that's also before the Cuban Missile Crisis, by the way. And that spectre has now returned. The spectre of nuclear war is still there and quite vivid at the moment. And so they thought, is there anything in, the, in this, this interrogation of nature? Right? So the way that we do science, the way that we acquire this knowledge that could be helpful in the wider sphere. So I should just underline that they certainly weren't saying that scientists should run the world, right? That would be a disastrous thing. But there is a simpler and more humble question. It was, is there anything in the, 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 the way that nature forces us to think, if we're to understand it, that might be useful? And Feynman in particular wrote this beautiful essay. I might have talked about it before, but it's called The Value of Science. And um, in it, he, he argues actually that it's humility so the, when you do research, and every research scientist, if anyone's listening to this who's done any research at all, they will know that most of the time you're wrong, right? It's in, interrogating nature is hard. Trying to find out how nature works is difficult. And we come up with theories, and most of the time it's just, it doesn't work, right? So Feynman said, 
it's that experience with being wrong and the experience with doubt and actually embracing doubt, not with fear, but with excitement, just standing on the edge of the known. That's what, that's what science is. That's what research is, sort of by definition. And he said, if we can just understand that we don't know everything and we're not, we're not, none of us, especially our leaders, the political system in general, none of us take the view that we know how to run a country or a world. It's just difficult. Then he said, he used these words, he said, that's the open channel, right? The open channel to, to I mean, he actually put it in quite spiritual terms. He said, the, the, the open channel to understanding the meaning of it all, he put it at that level, is the first to accept that we don't know. And that's what nature forces onto you. And you just, you know, reflect, if we look across the world now, just imagine that we had leaders, political leaders, political movements, where the first instinct is to say, this is really complicated, there are many things yet to understand, this is going to be the starting point, we're going to do our best, and if something happens that that looks like we've done the wrong thing, we'll say, okay, well, we've learned something now and we'll change course. That's what Feynman said. But the last thing I'll say is he defined science as a satisfactory philosophy of ignorance. And it's that, that's what he said. That's the open channel. That's very beautiful, Brian, to be willing to live at this necessary um, nexus of doubt and discovery continually recognizing that there is no uh, certainty and that we live in a kind of an, incon an inconclusive state. I, one of the things that's come up in our previous conversation are the kind of, in retrospect, plateaus of understanding the earth is flat, no, the earth is round, we go, the sun rotates around the earth, oh no, it's vice versa. And now because of the increasing complexity and because of the reach and success, certainly within certain disciplines within the scientific field, there is a greater and a deeper understanding. But when you describe the, the potential concomitant philosophy and how that might play out in politics and how that might play out sociologically of like, we don't know yet, we're discovering, we're learning, this seems to be the case, no one has sovereignty over truth and because we all understand how that leads to dogma and inevitably leads to conflict. I, it was so unfortunate and, and, and I, you know, like, because as you know, like much of my interest is around sort of spirituality and philosophy. I've like long understood that even if you're looking at apparently opposing disciplines or ideals, just for simplicity's sake, you could say like, uh, you know, Islam or Christianity within both of those, you know, there are perfectly intelligent and brilliant people on both sides of that argument as with atheism and spirituality or theology, perfectly brilliant, rational people on both sides of the argument. And, and yet when it comes to actual power and how society is run, the recourse is to that kind of certainty. The recourse is to, we know these people should, should not be doing this condemnation. And, you know, so even in your field, which is, you know, about necessarily empiricism and mine, you know, such as it is, which is speculative and contemplative, we are both saying that the ideal state would be to become an open channel to recognize with humility that our own personal lack of understanding and to be open continually to new discoveries. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Oppenheimer, 
he gave the um, the Reith lectures, the BBC Reith lectures, which many people know about, in 1953. And um, you can download the transcripts of them and one of the recordings. And in there, it's what you said there. You said you said both sides of the argument, but then you, you qualified it. And Oppenheimer gave an example of that in the, in the Reith lectures. He said that, uh, imagine the way that we think of uh, a particle now in physics, right? So the, the picture of a particle, like an electron, a subatomic particle. And uh, sometimes uh, that thing behaves a bit like a point, a little thing, a little grain of sand, right? Which is probably how we sort of picture it, really. But often, in other ways, it behaves like a, an, an extended object that fills the space in. So you put an electron in your room now, there's a, a description of it, which is an accurate description, that it just fills the room like a wavy kind of field thing that fills the room. And But he points out that neither are correct. It's more complicated than that. Those are two ways of viewing it. But actually, you have to have at least both of those pictures in your mind and some other pictures as well to get a complete picture of the electron. And so he says, going to your point, it is with society. Um, so we have different ways of viewing our place in society. There's an individualism, you know, we all um, think about ourselves and we want to go out and do work and earn money and, and buy nice things and that we all do that. But also there's an idea of a collective, right? There's also society. Those things Oppenheimer pointed out are not intention, right? They're not, you don't have to be, uh, in his language, he was writing in the fifties and he was just about to be pursued by McCarthy, by the way. So he said, you don't have to be a communist or a libertarian, I think are the words he used, but you, we can all update it to the modern view, but that's what he said. But you don't have to be one of those because it's more complicated than that. And actually it's almost a manifesto for centrism in some sense, because what he's saying is that all of these aspects are necessary, right? All of these different poles that human beings and societies have are all necessary, but none of them are the right way to be. The way to run a society is to understand that the picture is more complicated. And, and I think it's a beautiful analogy because it's certainly true. It's a, it's a, he uses it to say, because nature forces us to hold what appear to be contradictory ideas in our heads, so you just have to, especially when you're talking about quantum theory, then you get practice at doing that. And so that's the value of science education because once you're practiced, in this kind of abstract world of understanding particles, then you might be better at doing it in the more complex world of politics. Wow, that's really beautiful. I really like how you uh, interpret Oppenheimer's scientific ruminations and how they might be applied now. Brian, whenever I listen to you, I feel like I want you to do that, your party trick of, um, can you like explain quantum physics in one minute for us? And can you explain black holes in one minute? And can you tell me why the moon does that in one, like I sort of feel like, you know, like I've got children now, Brian, so I'm continually involved with and engaged with, like I have to explain, you know, thermonuclear dynamics, gravity, you know what children are, they, you always, why is that doing that? Why is that doing that? What's this? What's happening? How did we get from, you know, the smallest things are atoms and, uh, you know, protons, neutrons, electrons. How did we get down to where we are now? And do we, does it seem like that now is no more after that? There's not going to be another bit in hundred years where people say there's another layer. <laughs> it's a brilliant question. Um, in the show, actually, because I'm partly because I'm writing a book and doing a bit of research, um, I, I talk about black holes a lot. 
And uh, it's, black holes are really fascinating, not just because they're cool things that, like you said, all children like these completely collapsed stars that you can't escape from. But actually, um, if you go back to 1974, uh, Stephen Hawking published a paper that said in, in his own words, he said, black holes ain't so black, right? They, they radiate away into space. And the short answer is that in trying to understand that, we're being led to a theory of space and time, right? So these most fundamental things, as you said, have we got to the bottom of this universe, this reality? We're beginning to be led to a theory of space and time that says that space and time emerge from something deeper. Oh. Um, I say in the show, Einstein, it's one of my favorite quotes. Einstein had this he used to say that if we pay attention to nature, and it doesn't have to be a black hole, it can be something as simple as a blade of grass outside your house, right? Just on the pavement somewhere. But if we pay attention to it closely, then if we're lucky and we're tenacious, then we can catch a glimpse of something deeply hidden, which is oh, a beautiful man. phrase, something deeply hidden, which is the deep structure of reality, the structure of nature. And so by paying attention to black holes and trying to understand Stephen's landmark result from the 70s, in the last few years, just really 20, 2019, 2020, 2021, the, this emerging picture of what's called emergent space-time is coming through. So we're talking about, in some strange sense, atoms of space and time. So even those things oh, seem sure. to be built of something else, which is just remarkable. It also suggests that the physical world as we appreciate it is not absolute, but is layered and has factors that are difficult to contemplate. And when you use Einstein's phrase, there's something deeply hidden. And also the fact that it's an invitation to contemplation, to meditation, to like to, that almost we impose through our subjectivity and through, you know, necessary linguistics, a formulae onto reality that becomes restrictive and closes down the possibility of discovery. What else is conditioning? What else is civilization other than in esoteric fields, but the acceptance of pre-trodden ground. This is your reality. These are your systems. These are your opinions. But if you stop and contemplate a blade of grass, suddenly new realities become apparent that were ever present. Were they ever present, Brian? Did it take consciousness to create them? Are time and space themselves absolute? Do they? Are these apparently linear processes, these planes of reality, are they absolutely present? Are they in some kind of interface with us? Because you know where I'm going and where I will always go with this, Brian, is like, what is the role of consciousness? Is it possible that down in this sub-lepton world that the part that... I love this thing from Michael Singer, and he won't be someone I would imagine that you're particularly familiar with because he's from like a, he's a brilliant man actually, and his background is scientific. He designed a bunch of programs. He went and wrote a book, a very successful book, Untethered Soul. In it, he talks about we have omnipotence in so much as the the field contains all power, like this unified field, this quantum field. We have omnipresence in that all potential reality would have to be enmeshed within this quantum field and if consciousness is part of it rather than an emergent quality of biological processes then we would have omniscience also the three factors that sort of determine many sort of basic 
submerged, latent ideas of the holy, the divine and God. Do you sometimes wonder if our grammatical framework for understanding these broad ideas, such as space, time, etc., are inhibited in ways that we can never possibly understand because of the limitations of our instruments. I know we've been in this area before you and I, but I just wondered where you, how you feel that meets up with that Einstein thing there. Well, you, you, you made a really, you had a great phrase earlier on the, our, I think it was our animalistic reaction or the, which is our evolved response to nature. Right. So, so you, right. We've evolved to, to hunt and to defend ourselves with from things of a particular size like lions and things so that's the way that we we see nature yeah and, and actually 20th and 21st century science you're absolutely right has been a a way of peeling away those preconceptions where we've started to perceive these things these atoms and and now atoms of space-time what what it's interesting what you say the, the other side of the black hole um research which is related to what I just said about space-time emerging from something deeper, we do have a very good idea of what the thing that it's emerging from is, right? The thing that's something deeper. And some of the language you use there is, is appropriate for that thing. So there's essentially, we think that everything's emerging from what's known as quantum entanglement, right? So that's a, a property of... Um, I describe it in the live show, so I'll do it. I'll say to everyone, although you've heard it now, still buy tickets, <laughs> right? So I'll tell you anyway. <laughs> and I will use this analogy. But there's um, you can picture this idea called a quantum coin, right? So, so think of a coin, and you can look at it, and it can be heads or tails, and it'll be 50% heads, 50% tails. You can have quantum coins that are what's called entangled with each other. So you can have two of them. And... You can imagine them in, in what's called a state, which is a fancy word for a configuration, right? So a quantum state is called a configuration, where if you separate them to at the ends of the universe, right, the, the two ends of a galaxy or a billion light years, it doesn't matter, then they're still linked in a way that you can set them up, for example, that even though when you look at one of them, it looks completely random. It'll be heads and 50%, tails 50%. And you look at the other one, it'll be heads, tails 50%. They will never, ever be both heads or both tails, which is a really strange, completely counterintuitive idea. They're what's called entangled. And the thing is, there's information stored in that entanglement. But obviously, because the, the thing is saying you cannot be heads or tails. But what is it? It's not local. It's not localized on each coin. It's a property of the whole thing, even though it can be separated by a billion light years. And actually, what the theory that seems to be underpinning this is that you can represent our reality so precisely. So, so by which I mean our experience, this world with gravity and three space dimensions and time, all those things, you can represent as pure quantum mechanics pure quantum theory which doesn't have space or time in it just entanglement on a surface surrounding us right so it's it's been proved for some particular examples that are not quite our universe it seems to be harder for our but it's generally accepted it should be applicable right so that's called the holographic principle yes. which is saying that everything that we are can be represented by a theory that doesn't have space and time in it. It's just entanglement. And it's really akin, much closer, which goes to something you said, it's much closer to information theory 
it's much closer to the way that we have to think when we're trying to build quantum computers, actually. So it's almost like there's a code, right? It's almost like the universe runs in, in a way like a giant quantum computer. And it's more akin to, yeah, the, the way that computer programs operate than, than the way that we tend to think in terms of forces of nature and things like that and physical things. And so that, that I just should say that that's not to say, we're really not saying, no one's saying that we live in a simulation and that's argument for it, right? It's just, it's just that we're uncovering by trying to understand black holes, a different description of nature that works and allows us to explain how they behave. Um, but it's a description that looks much more like computing, which is really interesting. So there's, a, there's an underlying reality, I suppose. The last thing I'll say is that we've no business in saying which one of those is real. I think it's fair to say. It's just, but there are two descriptions which are very different, which give the same predictions. I like these models and theories, Brian. I like the idea that, that space and time may be projected from an ulterior reality and the principle of a holographic reality that doesn't require the sort of fundamental components of reality as we sort of rudimentarily appreciate it fascinates me in so much as both of those ideas have a uh, corollaries in scriptural uh you know history ideology i.e the veil of maya it's a, like it, as you know again from our previous conversations that i'm fascinated when we discover and like other people i've spoken to whose area of expertise is comparable to or aligns with your own um like say well there's a lot of things that get said in religions and half of it's you know i try to like myself my personal thing because i don't belong to a particular doctrine or religion or faith but because i'm sort of open to many of the underlying moral ethical ideas that appear throughout them you know essentially sort of perennialism and the sort of study of archetypes i'm always interested in the idea that they like you know when you said like you know einstein says study a blade of grass something might be revealed deeply it for me that lines up rather nicely with the wisdom of sages saints rishis and sufis who through contemplative practice and indeed you know einstein people that sort of like it's not through sort of smashing a hammer on something or dropping something kind of petri dish although of course that's how these theories are ultimately proven and become viable but through entering into a silent inward realm discoveries can be made whether those discoveries about the nature of reality, the nature of how a human being might treat other human beings, how a human being might uh, correspond successfully with our environment. It seems interesting to me that, because obviously what, what fascinates me, and something I talk about a lot with, with um, I'm sure a person you must admire, um, Adam Curtis, the filmmaker, who we talk about how might science and theology or philosophy start to, and obviously your interest in Oppenheimer suggests to me, and the quotes that you're using from Einstein suggest to me that it might be an area that you're interested in how might these two ideas come together to help us to formulate systems of not necessarily governance because of the suggestion that there is um oppression or at least control even within that word how might we live it's more successfully in alignment with the systems that we have evolved in harmony with how might we align with deeper truths of our cosmos what do we see about cooperation what do we see about correspondence and and, and ideas that are found in you know that are stated in in religiously but are relevant beyond religion which are obviously bagged up with cultural 
cultural inflection and all sorts of other ideas that we could talk about for ages. So, so I think what you're describing there is, is going back to what we spoke about earlier. You, you begin with humility and wonder, right? So, so the, I really, I've said it many times, and I really believe it, that the, the, um, the, the, the wellspring of, of science, right, the inspiration is the same as the inspiration to write a symphony or to, uh, ex- or to create a work of philosophy or theology. Uh, it's, it's, first of all, you've got to notice there's something worth contemplating. And that's the, that's the act, I think, that makes one a more complete person. Right? You just notice that there's something more out there and it's fascinating and beautiful. From that follows, I think, very quickly, the, the idea that we're extremely lucky to be here. So, so whatever this thing is, consciousness, this thing that we possess that allows us to explore and ask questions and delight in the beauty of this world that we find ourselves contemplating, that is really important. And, and I think from, from there, then there are, there are different ways of exploring that experience, which are all valuable. And as I said before, going back to Oppenheimer, none are sufficient, right? There's no right way to respond to that sense of awe at nature. And there there are different ways that are useful in different circumstances. So it it is true that if we want to answer questions about the universe, then science allows us to acquire reliable knowledge. For uh, for example, as you said in your introduction, it, it allows us to work out, which is very hard to work out, that the Earth goes around the sun, right? That's not, it's not obvious that. It doesn't look like that's what happens. So that's quite hard. And then it allows us to work out that we're part of a galaxy of 400 billion stars, which is hard to work out. And we didn't work out till the 20th century, although people had ideas about that in the 19th century and back further. And then it allows us to make a measurement that says that there's a big bang and it was 13.8 billion years ago. And so all those things are, that's, that's one of the responses to this sense of awe at reality. But as, and I do say this in my live show and I really, I believe it again, science isn't gonna tell you what that means. Right. You, you don't find meaning. I think I said last time I was on your show, you don't find meaning through the eyepiece of a telescope. So we have to de- deploy the whole armory that we have as human beings in order to try to, given these observations that we've made of reality, to try to make sense of it and, and, and ask that deep question. What does it mean? Um, what does it mean to live a finite, fragile life in an infinite, eternal universe? Right. That, I, that's one of the questions I pose to the audience. I also say, by the way, that if I knew the answer, I'd charge a lot more for tickets. So I don't know. I don't know the answer. But it occurs to you when you ponder the size of the universe. So, so the, yeah, the short answer to your question is that I think that it, it, the first step is exactly as you've described, that we just got to know there's something worth thinking about. And that's the that's the main thing to realize. You know, when art or music, and I suppose in your case, science, and in my case, because sometimes like watching your stuff or Neil deGrasse Tyson's or, you know, like um, you know, Carl Sagan and stuff, you, like when you're taken to that point of absolute wonder, when you think, oh my God, I actually can't hold that in my head anymore. 
you know, and like that could happen though in a beautiful animation or a beautiful piece of music where you're taken to that place, like that's sort of beyond me, and you feel that, yeah, that numinism, you feel that sense of this is beyond my faculties to know this, but I feel something greater, whether that is, you know, and however you want to define that is, you know, of course. That this place, this place, this precipice that can be reached through art and through just observation, really, observation and expression of the beauty of our reality. It has become increasingly excluded, I feel, from our cultural and social life. And I feel, Brian, that you and, you know, some of the other, you, let's just talk about you, you don't seem to me typical of, you know, not that there's a, it's not really a crowded field, is it? Sort of a science entertainer, communicators. I mean, there's not loads of you really out there. But but, but generally speaking, you know that there's this, this, you'll be familiar with the term scientism. You'll be familiar, of course, with a type of scientific understanding that's used to underwrite certainty. You'll be familiar too that recently, politically, scientific understanding has been, is, to some degree, necessarily been used to underwrite policy. But when it comes to conversations about gender, when it comes to the conversation about government, mandating stuff can you see sometimes when it comes to the field of chemistry and pharmacology and this sort of the irresponsibly you know, irresponsibility and I, and I think we're on legally safe territory when we say with the opioid crisis that science is occasionally a subset of corporatism science is occasionally a subset of power science is sometimes a subset of politics vis-a-vis gender conversations and sexuality conversations how do you retain your own purity how do you retain your own presume presumably your your own disgust in the same way as that i would be disgusted with anyone using religion as a way of reaching uh, being dogmatic certain condemnatory how do you manage the misuse i would call it of science well i mean a very good example as is the pandemic um because what you saw there was science in action in real time, in a very serious situation. So if you go back, you know, three years, then we don't know anything about this virus at all. It it may have been in some animal reservoir, you know, in bats or something. We, We really, we didn't know about it. We had no knowledge about this virus. And then we discover it. And then we start to do science in order to understand it, understand how it transmits, develop vaccines and so on. So what you saw there was real-time research. And I think that many people and politicians are just, in general, not scientists, they're just people. They they, they didn't know, that they misunderstood that process. It's very easy in politics uh, to say, well, we heard it, right? This is the science. We are following the science. As if there is a, a little book that you can open and it's and there's a list of things and it says right do this this is what you should do you should wear masks in enclosed spaces or you should do this and that and, and so on when actually what was happening was people were doing research and then finding out that okay so is this thing airborne or not we didn't know actually initially does it spread mainly in droplets does it spread on surfaces does it so so as you find out more about the thing then the advice changes. And that, that's where I think that there can be a problem because that, that word, the advice changes. A lot of people, I think, tend to think that if advice changes, then the previous advice was wrong. 
It was it was it undermines the authority of the people that gave the advice. That's not the case in science. It's not that we, we the, the best way to look at science is that we never claim that we're right. Right. All we're saying is that this is the best snapshot of our opinion at some time and it will change. And then on top of that, you're right. The undercurrent of your question is that people who are disingenuous, who are not practicing what we've been speaking about, which is humility and just trying to understand the nature and understand a new thing, be it a pandemic disease or the evolution of the universe, that disingenuous people can just take the one piece of advice that backs up their prejudice and then use it vocally in order to justify their actions. And that's where it goes wrong. So it's not, it, it all goes back to this, this you've, we've got to understand that science is not a belief system, right? It, it, it's not, um, we're not, scientists don't sit on a mountain passing down stone tablets to the, <laughs> the people at the bottom saying, this is, this is it. As I just said, you know, go back to what I said about Feynman and Oppenheimer, Science is a satisfactory philosophy of ignorance. And so I think the problems occur, that they can occur sometimes. The scientists can, you know, it's very hard. I had great respect for the scientists that were working during the pandemic, you know, the public facing scientists, because they're not people necessarily who understand the nuance of communicating with the public, right? They, they don't, they're scientists. And so they're likely to say, well, at the moment, um, we don't know everything, but we know this. And so we think you should do this. But then they might not even say, because it's kind of obvious to them that actually we might discover something tomorrow and then we're going to say you should do the other thing. Right? So, so it's very, very, very difficult, especially in a serious situation like a pandemic, to, um, to, to communicate that. It's, it's, I'll just, it's an argument for science education, actually. Yeah. Because, because you, you need to... From, from being a child, from, yeah. from very young, you, if you can just understand that this is contingent knowledge, it's constantly evolving, it, you can't be told what to do, right? Mm. Science is not going to tell you what to do um, because with, with certainty, because we might <laughs> we, we'll find something else out tomorrow. But that I said it before, it's, the point is it's the method we have of acquiring reliable knowledge like it provides potential survival techniques. We've observed these things. So our best estimate is if you do these things and don't do these things, the odds are you will, you will the odds will improve for you based on our research. So the, the challenge for, I suppose, comes is when, subset, when science becomes a subset of economics or when science becomes a subset of power. When science, and I'm not now speaking particularly about the pandemic, I'm speaking about how, you know, take the obvious example of the opioid crisis where drugs were released and promoted through physicians that were understood to be addictive and that information was controlled. You know, like me, I have a background of addiction and all that stuff and it's subsequently been proven and there's been massive payouts by Pfizer and Johnson and & Johnson and, the, and um, you know, the other companies that profited from these drugs and the, the Sackler family and all those dudes. You know, and this for me is that I would make a comparable argument around the subject of, you know, the, the a formerly 
powerful uh, ideology whose potency has waned, and I'm sure to some degree this is beneficial. And in other, to another, uh, but from another perspective, this is problematic. The religious ideology, religious ideology, became used to underwrite power and to underwrite the intentions of the powerful. And I, I see sometimes it seems to me that in the field of pharmacology or in the field of what do I want to call it, sort of sociology and um, social management, that. Because like we all intuitively, because of the principles that you espouse and explain so brilliantly, they're kind of irrefutable. So when people use those principles to, they sort of map those principles onto something that that is that doesn't bring with it, Brian. But this is an ongoing discourse, and there has to be transparency and both sides of the conversation. And there are perfectly good arguments on both sides. You know, people don't bring that stuff with you because that's not expedient. If you're trying to win an argument, if you're trying to dominate or create control. So this is, ah, oh man, there's so many areas like, you know, whenever I'm, I'm always grateful to speak with you because I am fascinated by science. I'm fascinated by learning. And but, but because I'm also fascinated by the way power operates, a lot of my interactions with, you know, inverted commas, science are actually interactions with power. And like, so I start to bridle a little bit. So it's always encouraging to hear your ethical, open, pure way of talking about scientific principles, I suppose. You're right. I mean, I suppose it's the same. You, you, you're right. You, you said it with all, all forms of thought. So you, you said religious thoughts, scientific thoughts, those things. The, the, there are people who are interested in being powerful, aren't they? Mm. They're, they're not interested in the best solution to a problem at any given time. Always at any given time. I, I just keep emphasising this. There is no we never know if we've got the best solution because our thought, you know, our understanding changes, but there is such a thing as the best advice at any given time. Um, but you're right that there are, there are a, a subset of people who tend to rise to the top. I suspect for this reason, who really enjoy being powerful and they'll use anything. They'll use the, they'll use a little bit of science, a little bit of theology, a little bit of philosophy, a bit of social science, a bit of economics in order to, to to bolster their position and and even perhaps even they're not maybe they're not interested in just power maybe they're just interested in being right maybe they're the kind of person who likes to be seen to be right you know as let's because i know about science let's say a scientist but you can extend this to other fields a, a scientist is not someone or an artist right let's say that they're not someone who wants to be wants to be seen to be right they're someone who wants to just acquire more knowledge a deeper understanding of something. It might be a deeper representation of the world as you see it as an artist or a musician. You're interested in that. But right? you're not interested in someone saying, if you're a musician, right, you make an album. You're not really, I don't think many musicians are interested in someone saying, this is the best album ever. <laughs> right? There will never be a better album than this. I don't, maybe you can name one or two that you've met that do things like that, but I, I don't think there are many. Right? Most people are thinking I, I'm making music and I'm exploring different ways of making music and the next work will be interesting. And that, that's the key point, isn't it? It's, it's a character flaw. It's not a flaw in science or indeed in philosophy or in anything else that, that people take those subjects and that knowledge and then just use it because they want a bigger palace that's not a flaw in the things no it's a flaw in them 
<laughs> Brian, do you sometimes feel disheartened when we are on the precipice of so much beautiful discovery in astronomy and co- cosmology and in quantum physics and in medicine when there are these areas of great progress and the incumbent beauty that we appear to at the same time be at a critical point sociologically a point of division and conflict and doubt and uncertainty and social breakdown and condemnation and snap judgment and oppositionism what how do you feel about that and how why do you think that there is this bifurcation of apparent progress in one area and a kind of a a hostile stagnation elsewhere how do you marry those ideas i think um that what we've talked about is the joy and the the great um, satisfaction, personal satisfaction that comes from having the space to think about these things, right? We we both agree on that, right? It's a we are much more content people. Um, so the first thing you've got to say in society is: Does everyone have the space to think about these things, right, and access this joy? And the answer is no, no. So so it's clear that that a more healthy society is one in which it's not it is very often not the fault of people that they don't obviously that they don't have a bit of time to sit there and and you know wonder about the universe and think which which is you know i think in many ways the bedrock of both our um lives right it's the way we enjoy ourselves and then, um, so first of all, we've got to make sure there's a society in which everyone has that space and they don't because we live in a very unequal society, not only in terms of wealth, but in terms of just time, right? You have yes. to have time to do these things. Um, so if we talk about a utop- what would be my utopia, it would be that everybody has the luxury of spending some time um, thinking about these things that bring great joy. And then... Um, from then you have to make sure that people have the tools to do it. So that means education being good it's because people, you know, I can't, I don't have a natural aptitude for, for thinking like this. I was very lucky that, that I, you know, went to school and enjoyed some things. And ultimately after a bit of a detour into music, managed to get back into university at a time when it was easier to do so, by the way. And, um, and I got access to these, these mental tools that I've learned by being taught them and developing them. Mm-hmm. And so, so that I think that, so one answer to your question, you have to be mindful of the fact that not everybody can, has the luxury of being able to think in this way, not because they can't, but we just don't have the time because they're busy just living. So I think that's important. And the other thing is I was asked to give the, um, intro a video intro to cop 26 um the climate summit and they just said to me is there one thing if there's one thing you could you could say to the world leaders what would it be and i know we've talked about this before but my the thing i said to them is it is possible that there is nowhere else in the milky way galaxy where this happens where all the things we've spoken about happen where you know, to, to use Carl Sagan, I've used it many times, where, 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 where there are collections of atoms as old as time, right? That basically, that's what we are, collections of atoms as old as time that have come together to think and feel and bring meaning to the universe and explore it. There might be nowhere else other than this world. And so surely the overwhelming responsibility is to pass the world on to the future 
because the future of a galaxy might depend on that. There might be no, there might be no, you know, we, we watch Star Trek or whatever it is, and we see these wonderful utopian visions of a beautiful world where there are spaceships and all this stuff, you know, and everyone's having a wonderful time and you can just walk up and say tea, Earl Grey hot and some tea appears, you know, and all those things. And there, there might be nowhere else. That future might not exist if we mess this up. And the, and the idea Given that knowledge, let's let's take it. That's what I said to them. Take it as a working assumption that there's nowhere else. So you are responsible for meaning, the future of meaning in a galaxy forever. Right. Let's start there. I think that's a good working assumption. How shall we behave from that one idea? If you just think about that, if you're someone who's got some power, think about that. It's your responsibility. Sagan used to say, and you know, we might disagree on this theologically, but Sagan used to say that let's assume there's nobody else going to come to save us from ourselves. Let's start there and let's then proceed. It's mm. our responsibility. Mm. And I think even you, you should, I'll ask you the question, but I think even in, in the religious tradition, I think ultimately we understand that it's our responsibility. Yeah. Even, even if there's a God out or gods out there, looking down on us they have actually allowed us free will it, that says to me that whatever you think it's our choice whether we want to build a better future absolutely brian the god that i believe in is not discreet and patriarchal the god of that i believe in is the god of the quantum entanglement there's the god of there is no nowhere else because our most relevant understanding is the idea of somewhere else is impossible to conceive of if there is an intricate interconnectivity between things separated by billions of light years the ideas of space and time melt away and also the idea of self starts to look like a construct a, a set of traumas and memories and projections that you can transcend beyond using personal practices and perhaps reach something in yourself that is aligned with this field of unity and oneness, non-separateness, that you can start to feel the deep harmonics and resonance within this universe. The sets of principles that seem like intelligence, the golden scale, the language of mathematics start to seem like this glorious symphony that you're part of and that you don't need to sort of set into a, uh, a Mount Olympus or a Bhagavad Gita or a, a, a Torah or a Quran. The evident, imminent, ever-present beauty is enough. My, my question, my, my concern would be that those people that you put those ideas to are so enmeshed and welded to systems of dominance. In fact, I heard a great thing from Yanis Varoufakis, an, another great atheist and a great friend and influence on me, who says, like, you know, he said that when he was, like, going to their meetings, when he was, you know, in Syriza with the EU, he recognised that even the most powerful people in the EU, their power is only afforded to them by their role. They have no individual power. They no have have no agency. Like in that moment, no one can go. Do you know what? Actually, yeah, we're going to change everything because they wouldn't, as uh, as Chomsky said of Andrew Marr, if you if you hadn't been conditioned, you wouldn't be in that chair. The very fact that they're at COP26 means the work's been done for them. They will act in alignment with existing state mantras. They will act in, in accordance with existing corporate interest. They will participate only to the degree that it does not affect profit and bottom line because there is already a fundamentalist ideology in place that 
obfuscates the need for more scientific discovery or endeavour or more spiritual inquiry because they have already decided on their ideology. It's an economic one that is deeply masked. Now, I'm not without hope. I'm like you, somehow inherently optimistic, although also evidently somehow more angry. <laughs> like I'm sure you have your moments. I, I feel that what we have to do is find a way of, um, you know, from like, like as communicators, forget that your background is in science, though it's super important. And I loved it when you said detour because I thought D-Ream was their detour. <laughs> um, like, uh, you know, that, that, that what our job is, in spite of our, you know, sort of the, the, the differences, because if we can't deal with differences, then how the, you know, what kind of alliances are we likely to form? You know, that, that we have to communicate this sense of wonder, this sense of inquiry, this sense of humility and this necessity for change. This is what we have to come together to create. And actually, um, you know, look at our system in the UK. I mean, it's clearly true that there are very few politicians who come from a scientific background. That's just a fact. Um, A lot of them, certainly in the current cabinets, I think, are coming from, uh, you know, the PPE, kind of those things, you know, politics, philosophy and economics courses at particular universities. And I think maybe that somehow we have to find a way of getting more diverse voices. And that's not, that doesn't only mean from, it does mean, it's usually meant in terms of um, different backgrounds, and that's true, but also different specialities. Um, because I think you're right, and until, until we try to broaden the philosophical base and, and, and ask very fundamental questions, as I've just posed, about what the point <laughs> of running a society is, right? What is the point? (laughs) I think the point is to make sure, ensure that this civilization here on this planet, one civilization um, persists and ultimately uh, delivers a better way of life, a better quality of life to everyone on the planet. And ultimately, I, I think, allows us to begin to expand outwards. Um, that's where I, you know, agree with some of the the the, the controversial visionaries out there, um, the the space flight visionaries. You know, I, I think if you start from the premise that it's a good working assumption that consciousness only exists here on this planet um, at the moment in the Milky Way, uh, then it follows that you would like to move it off the planet at some point. So there are certain, there are long-term goals and short-term goals, and we could discuss those. But ultimately, it's not to get re-elected. But that's the lowest, uh, given that perspective, we've got to find a way of moving the focus away party-based politics, I think, just practically, is a practical point. But I think... Actually, if you look back, there was um, uh, Rory Stewart tweeted something the other day, um, and it was an interview with Harold Wilson um, when he was just about to lose the election, and it was David Dimbleby talking to Wilson, and you'll you'll see it somewhere on Twitter, and it's really fascinating because he says Dimbleby put something to him. You said about I think it was Heath, right? So it's, you said about Heath. Um, this you, you said that you know it was an attack an attack on on his opponent and Wilson said yeah but that was that was uh, during an election campaign and I was trying to win because I think I'd be better at running the country but now I've lost then he has my full support and I, I withdraw that attack now I, that attack is now irrelevant because and it's really 
you know, you think, wow, the, the, it is possible to have this more functioning, less adversarial politics because we had it in living memory. Yeah. It's not difficult for politicians to say, I, I'm making an argument because I think I'll be better at it. But my overriding job is not just to fight the next election, the moment that I've lost this one. My overriding job now is for the next four or five years to support, if I can, to argue against, but also to support this yeah. government in trying to make the country better and the world better. And then when the, the cycle comes around again, as it must, be, then I'll make the arguments again. And if I lose, I'll go, okay. The, uh, Oppenheimer, right? Uh, it's my interpretation of something Oppenheimer said, which I actually wrote down in my friend and your friend Robin Ince's book. I wrote the intro to his book. Um, I think it's called Importance of Being Interested, his book, and it's a lovely book. But I say the, the thing that I got from Oppenheimer, in my words, is that there's a pendulum that swings, right, in, in a democracy, that because we don't all agree on the way to, to make progress, right? We all, we'll have different views. And as we've said, that's legitimate because nobody knows how to run the country anyway because it's too complicated. Mm -hmm. So we have a pendulum. And if you see this pendulum swing towards you, so that goes to the party that you like, then you're very happy. And it swings away and you're a bit disappointed. But the thing is that the swing itself is a manifestation of and the guarantor of your freedom, right? It's the manifestation of freedom because if the pendulum is not swinging, then you live in a dictatorship because the, the, everybody, you know, it stops. So then we're just doing one thing now. We, we can't, it can't be possible we all agree, but if the pendulum stops, then you're not in a free society. And it's the guarantor of your freedom because, because it's only once you've recognized that there are different ways to do it, then as long as we're bouncing around and sometimes it's one way and sometimes it's the other way, then we know that we're making progress. Right? The argument is continuing. The debate is continuing. The key thing, though, the thing that we've lost, and, and I, I can, you can blame political parties for this. We shouldn't blame them for everything, but you can, let's not blame individuals. Let's blame the party structure. The thing we've lost is that there's kind of a, a loud screaming when the pendulum swings away from you. It's like it's a disaster. And all, the, the only function of our party now is to grab hold of that pendulum and swing it back again. The pendulum will swing as, as long as we have a free society where everybody's chatting away and the democracy is working properly. The you don't have to keep, you don't have to grab <laughs> the thing. You don't have to drag it, but it'll come back if you make the right arguments. <laughs> you, but, but but in the process, you've got to you've got to support whoever it was that won the argument at the particular time, whilst being critical of them. And it's so important. But you, it's not hard because it definitely used to happen. It's, it's I would encourage anyone to go back and just look. It's not the great party, right? The, the great a great fun thing to do necessarily. But go back and look at some political interviews from from the seventies when there was huge debate, right? What, a, you know, it was a turbulent time, but you see a far more civilized age, right? In, yeah. in it, certainly politically, not in many ways, you know, people have listened to this going, well, it wasn't, you're right, the, the, we've made enormous social progress. So I, I, let me just emphasize, I'm yeah. certainly not saying we should go back to the seventies. No. Attitudes were on many subjects you know, sexuality and race and so on, obviously, yeah. many others were horrendous at the time. Yeah. So we've made huge progress. But just in terms of the civility, 
of debate. <laughs> yeah, there was a little bit of conviviality and the idea that they might go to the bar afterwards and have a little bit of a talk about it. But my, the cynic in me, Brian, as suspects that like that if I were interested truly in power, that I would find ways of managing that pendulum no matter where it swung, i.e. by lobbying and funding both of those political parties, talking specifically about American politics and ensuring that the pendulum motion was just a, a dumb, never priapic phallus swinging between the legs of a a dominating colossus that will stop at nothing till it stomps out all human freedom. You're absolutely right. I mean, the, the thing is, it can be overly zen if you're not careful, because obviously there are certain ways the pendulum can swing that that just anyone who has any sense of history or indeed morality can look at and say, oh, you know. But But I think maybe you could argue, and I don't know, I'm, I'm out of my field, maybe you could argue that actually that swing to extremes, maybe that maybe we're maybe we're pushing the thing through, through the way that we conduct debate. You know, maybe, maybe we're polarizing. I'm, well, it's not even maybe, is it? We we are polarizing, and that that's the thing. You will the underlying idea needs to be that you personally, us, one, right, as an individual, you have to understand that you're not right. Yes. That's yes. it. Once you <laughs> once you think once you know that even though you sit in the pub or wherever it is and you have a very clear, you see it, don't you? You used to see it with Manchester United when people go, Alex Ferguson, what an idiot! Why is he playing gigs over there? You know, and you go, well, I, you know, there's somebody in the pub. You know, we, we all have very strong opinions, um, and and we have to understand that that's just what they are. They're opinions, and they're, they're valid. There are opinions. But the, um, this this position of inquiry that we began our conversation with uh, under Oppenheimer's under the auspices of Oppenheimer's humility is I, I read that book recently of that um, sadly recently deceased monk um, Bjorn Nithiko my friend Fern Cotton turned me on to him and like uh, he's the title of his book is I may be wrong and he said the best mantra he ever learned was I may be wrong I may be wrong I may be wrong whenever I feel fearful whenever I feel angry whenever I feel certain try to remember I may be wrong to your point about the sort of uh, fluctuations or at least the the transitions that we're experiencing culturally. Recently on on the show, I had the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist Chris Hedges, who sort of worked for the New York Times and is like a, 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 an accomplished and decorated war reporter, who you know now doesn't work at the New York Times and. And it was on Russia Today, you know, but on Russia Today, so like have Slavoj Zizek and Edward Snowden and like philosophers and dissidents. And now his whole thing has been wiped. And I see this as another move of the trajectory of like, oh, no, man, people are becoming certain. Censorship is about certainty. Now, and on that, because there's a few things I want to ask you about, My, a few, because we're at the we're at an hour now, uh, Brian, for, for full transparency. Um, although, if anyone would understand time, it would be you. I was going to ask about dark matter and Robin Ince simultaneously, and um, and uh, and what what do they share? <laughs> They're both difficult to know. <laughs> what are the qualities of dark matter and Robin Ince? Because you're doing your tour with Robin, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Robin um, is a. Uh... He always says that he walks on at the start and says that he's kind of the um, the the relief when when the existential pressure gets too great, then this <laughs> bloke wanders on with a cardigan. And <laughs> so, so yeah, and, and he also um, deals with the Q and A part of the show, which is really great because every audience has different questions and we cool. do. That. But yeah, it's cool. great. It's 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 wonderful touring with them, um, with Robin. He brings a whole different uh, dynamic. Yeah, he's a brilliant comedian, and uh, yeah, I know you're close friends with him, but I, I admire him very much myself as well. And uh, 
dark matter and is and do robin's cardigans somehow correlate to dark matter and is there anything you've got to add on the subject of dark matter before i glide neatly into elon musk and a conclusion for the for the for the show dark matter it's a beautiful example of um of, of physics in action we, we we look out into the universe and see lots of things that we don't understand the way that galaxies rotate and interact with each other some the way that galaxies formed in the first place and there's one idea which fits many different observations which is there's some new kind of little subatomic particle out there that we haven't yet discovered um so it's not necessarily right but it's got the benefit and this is when scientific ideas tend to to become mainstream in science of a single explanation explaining many different observations cool. so that's what it is and um, the relation to robin is that robin wouldn't exist if it wasn't for dark matter because the galaxies wouldn't have formed in the first place in the that's, early universe robin simply is a dark matter what do you think about um elon musk his cultural and social uh power what do you think about you know i know you're a keen user of twitter and like, what do you think about that? And do you think that he is distinct from other oligarchs or billionaires that own platforms? And you, what do you make of Elon Musk? And he's both in this, like he's, I don't know, his spirit of like pioneering space projects, his apparent ingenuity at meshing together scientific discovery and commerce. And he's the, and the current wrath that he's incurring. What do you reckon to all this, Brian? So if you look at him, and I've only I met him once, so I don't know him. But but if you look at his underlying motivation, I think it's true that he built Tesla because he felt that electric cars were part of the solution in trying to allow our civilization to flourish, right, and, and persist. All the things we've talked about, and he did a good job. So he built a car company, which I think has transformed the conversation around electric cars, which is a good thing. Then he did the same for space flight, and it's the same motivation. And he noticed that we need to build reusable rockets if we're going to um, make space access to space cheap and safe. And, um, and so he did that, and he has the world's most effective rocket company. And that's good. It's a good thing because um, space is not really an option. As we, we discussed all this before. I don't need to go over it again. So... So I think that that so he's got a track record of, of this underlying philosophy that our civilization is precious and needs to be saved and needs to flourish. And he does things and he's been successful in those two endeavors. So I assume and I have no inside knowledge at all that what he thinks is that the thing we've been talking about, the, the divisive nature of public debate and those things operate on social media platforms. And I assume that therefore he thinks that if he owns the social media platform, then he can contribute to freer debate. That's why I'm assuming is going on in his head. Um, I, I don't know if that I agree with that. Um, you know, as I said, he's, he's been successful at least twice and with PayPal as well, I suppose. So, yeah. so everything he tends to do, he tends to be successful at. So um, let's see what happens. I mean, it's, it's a wider debate, isn't it? It's about, it's about whether these platforms need democratic oversight or not. Um, you know, um, so then it becomes complicated, doesn't it? Because what do I mean by that? Do I mean government control? Well, obviously I don't. No. Um, because in a utopian world, then they would be owned by the people, I suppose. No. Um, now, and then, <laughs> but look what happens then. Um, look, at, look at Channel 4. 
in the UK, right? Let's not even talk about the BBC. Look at Channel 4, which is owned by the people and is funded by advertising. So it's not paid for by the people, but it's owned by the people. And uh, that's a good model, isn't it? I like that model. I would, I think that these hugely important platforms, it's impossible, it's utopian, right? Because they're multinational platforms. But imagine that the town square, as I think Elon refers to it, was actually owned by the people and funded by nobody other than, so not taxpayers or anything like that, other than maybe funded through some kind of advertising or something. So, so, it's, so it's not funded by a single person or a single block of companies or something like that. And even advertising, you know, I know people who watch it, even advertising is problematic because advertisers are big spenders and they have, so it's, it's difficult, isn't it? But so that's the last point. So I think I give him the benefit of the doubt in that I think that he demonstrates that he's got an underlying philosophy, which is the, the value of our civilization. But I, I do not, you know, I, I mean, if it were me, I, if, if I said, uh, I'll advise you, you've got 40 billion to spend. <laughs> what should you spend it on? I, I personally, I wouldn't choose Twitter <laughs> to spend that 40 billion. Yeah, I might choose a rocket company or an electric car company uh, or, or the Hyperloop that he's, you know, one of his companies is working on this really already clean, got fast, efficient, you know, clean, fast, efficient transportation around the world. All those things. Wonderful. So, yeah, it's a huge problem, isn't it? I don't know what you think. I mean, it's a, social media, as we both know, because we're big users of it and we benefit from it and we, it's a great access to people that want to talk to us. Um, but as we all know, it's, it's, a, it's a toxic place. Emergent, don't know how to manage it see this thing you said brian that time and space are emergent properties of an ulterior phenomenon of an ulterior realm dimension well i don't know the quite the right lexicon there um but like all things are a reflection like of a, a social media must be a reflection of a psychic space of an inner psychic space uh, you know met when met with certain corporate interests certain state interests certain ideological ideological interests and how they all correlate interface and conflict with one another so yes there is toxicity in them of course there's toxicity in us and it seems like that my concern is and it seems like it's yours is that there's an amplification of that toxicity and an amplification of that uh, kind of sort of i don't know that sort of tribal discord that we're all experiencing and is sort of unsettling at the moment earlier when you were talking about you know the word that's used is polarization and of course this is a literally a scientific term and i wonder doesn't polarity suggest on some level connection doesn't magnetism emerge from polarity and i wonder if from this you know you used your pendulum metaphor very effectively till i turned it into a, a penis uh, like i wonder if um like uh, if it, within this idea of polarity there is the potential to find some emergent synthesis in a kind of thesis antithesis synthesis model or if somewhere suggested in the repulsion or revulsion of polar forces is there some way that that isn't that energy somehow useful and i mean literally scientifically and to see if we can find a metaphor that's good for of the social polarization i it's a good question isn't it i hadn't thought about it i mean i suppose that i suppose you could argue that it means that people care i've seen this argument made that you know you don't society doesn't make great leaps forward and it's true if there's nobody in it who's angry about inequality and injustice and so on you, you so you have to have people 
who are really exercised and really care about certain issues. Otherwise, we would have never made progress. So I suppose if we're trying to be optimistic, you could argue that having loud, loud voices that are, you know, bringing our attention, drawing our attention to particular causes, um, is is a helpful. It's a, it's a, then you've got a you've got a, a vigorous debate in the public space, haven't you? But but the, the thing is that, so that's good. But the thing is, we need to know how to do that. And I think probably, and again, there'll be experts out there, so I'm just kind of freelancing, busking <laughs> you. But probably there's something to be said for the fact that we've sort of worked out over the last sort of 5,000 years how to have conversations physically in the public space. Yeah. Right? We, we kind of, you know, we've got some experience on that. So and I, I think in the last, you know, just the 20 years that we've had at most with, with social media, we haven't worked it out yet. So you see it, you know, you've seen it on Twitter. You see, you'll see it in response to, to this when you post it. There'll be, <laughs> there'll be people who say things that you would never consider saying physically in physical proximity, not just because you're worried that, you know, one of the things I do with Robin Ince, by the way, uh, on Tories, we have, um, we, we box, we like boxing, believe it or not. Wow, so, um, cool. so it's quite fun seeing Robin then um, boxing. It's quite, it's quite, it's quite tough little, you know, <laughs> but I've got a longer reach, but, um, so I can do it. But, um, but the thing is, you know, so it's not just that though, is it? It's not just the threat of physical, <laughs> right. you know, conflict that, right. that's, that moderates people. There's something about being face to face with someone physically that moderates your behavior. And I, I, so I think we haven't learned how to do that yet. And yes, uh, that's my view. Dia Khan comes on the show. She's a journalist, Norwegian Muslim woman. She get, like goes and hangs with, or at least she did go and hang with white supremacists. And she's like a Muslim and dark skinned woman. And like when she, um, like she says that when she actually hangs out with white supremacists, they can't be racist. They're sort of like, yeah, no, I don't mean you though. <laughs> like it sort of, it sort of, it sort of breaks down. They can't, they can't survive contact you know and often i think brian where might we emulate how we evolved if we've only had civilizations of this kind for a couple of thousand years if it's only ten thousand years for the agricultural since the agricultural revolution what is stitched deep into the helixes that ought be behaviorally and socially reflected are we even are we equipped to live in groups of hundreds of thousands and millions is that even possible ought we not use our understanding of our own anthropological history if that's not a tautology to create little systems that are reflective in the same way as we understand from diet you know sugar and fat are scarce if you eat a lot of sugar and fat diabetes and other complications perhaps there are other behavioral and sociological learnings that we could deploy about how human beings lived oh we ate these kind of foods we had this kind of discourse i'm not a luddite brian i love science i love comfort i love luxury i love even privilege but what i'm saying is is what what is there what models are there in us as evolved apes that we can say well if you put people in that situation they're not going to flourish if they're atomized they're not going to flourish if they have conversations with people when they can't watch their faces move you know they're going to even feel or sense their heartbeats or breathe together there are sort of things there are rhythms and systems that we could be using to create harmony if not utopia something better than this you know i suggest that there and suspect that there are keys and codes in our shared history that could help us reform and move closer into alignment with with nature our own and nature external yeah, i think that um society and democracy um has it's evolved 
And um, I remember once I was asked to give a, a talk. Uh, just, I was at the opening of the visitor centre in Parliament, right the, in the in the UK Parliament, right, right there. And I'd just gone. I got invited. To, Will you say something? It's like, well, what? <laughs> I don't know. Mm. Um, and so it occurred to me that um, if you look at our in the UK, if you look at our system, right, it's absolutely bizarre. Right, obviously, it's got it's weird. It's got the the House of Lords and the 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 you know the House of Commons with the constituencies and all these things, and the, and it's all just very strange. But it's evolved, and I realised that it's like an organism, like a like a human being. Right, you can't give, if I give anyone the, the, a super being. Right, if I said here's DNA, here's the code that underwrites it, derive a human then you can't, you can't, because it's, we're products of four billion years of history, literally, right? We're, there's no broken chain of life leading back to some hydrothermal vent under the ocean 3.8 billion years ago. And so there's weird stuff in humans. There's the appendix and the way that maybe the eye is wired, which is probably an optimal, who knows, with the blind spot and all those things. There, we don't want to get into the biology. There are some people who argue that it could be pretty good idea that you've got a blind spot and whatever. But anyway, but broadly speaking, you couldn't, you, you, you wouldn't start from here, right? With a blank sheet of paper, you would not design a human being. It's, it's a bit of a bodge job, but that's what we are, right? Because of our history. So it is with the constitution. So it is with the parliament. So attempts to, what you've got to understand is that it, the way that we manage societies evolves and it's very very complicated and there is something in the history right there's something even though it looks illogical there's something in the fact that these structures are allowing more of us to live together in relative harmony right not with you know put aside all the the injustice and equality which is certainly there but broadly speaking i think the point is that it's not possible to sit down with a blank sheet of paper and design a utopia I think you can, people who, who read a bit of history will know that when that tends to, people try to do that, it tends to go horribly wrong. Um, so there, there's something to be said for the fact that we have, we are evolving. We've got to give our societies the space to evolve. To go back to something you said, we have to live as many billions of people on the surface of this rock, right? So even though it's very difficult and there might be some, you know, you might say, well, it's actually easier to go back into little villages and let's not, so, you know, let's try and manage ourselves in groups of 100 because there's some evidence that that's the optimal size of the group. It's tough, right? The, the, the size of our group now is whatever it is, six, seven billion. Um, and so, so we've got to face that fact. And, and I don't think, the final thing I'd say is I don't think that anyone is clever enough to find an optimal way to do it. I don't think there even is such a thing as an optimal way to do it. So we've got to strive to manage it, but we can't, we can't regress, right? We can't say it'd be better, wouldn't it, if we didn't have to interact with all those people over there because that causes some conflict because they have a different view of the world. So let's rather, let's rather just sort of try and hide and build a wall around ourselves, you know, to use a popular political metaphor right let's let's build walls let's become more nationalist let, 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 let's let's you know isolate our country and just try and keep those those ideas and things that, that's not going to work is it although there are some aggregating sometimes i think brian there are aggregating systems that are not in 
natural natural steps of evolution. They are about accumulation and centralization of power. And so much of that is affiliating and commensurate with the globalist movement that a kind of a traditionalist or nationalist backlash is a sort of an inevitable pendular response to a degree because the globalist movement has extracted power from, you know, from communities. And as I would say, like evolution at least is a model that is a response between, you know, individuals or individual species and environment and other species. Whereas economic models are sort of, you know, if unless you sort of extract ideology from that, you say, well, how did American democracy become what it is? What are the most powerful factors? What are the limiting factors? How did it get there? What would happen if you went, you cannot lobby, you cannot earn this type of money if you're in Congress, you cannot speculate on stocks if you're in Congress, you know, if you started to introduce those kind of laws. And again, I'm not... Um, you know, I am sort of at heart, I believe in that people should be able to find ways of getting along in spite of our individual and collective fallibility. And I'm certainly not an isolationist or a, any kind of nationalist, but I, I feel that one of the tensions we have to learn to manage is the tension between apparent progressivism and apparent traditionalism and where the opposition is becoming too fraught and offer people the comfort that, well, in a way, these ideas might be sort of abstract for you because you don't have to live in some sort of non-binary tribal system and you don't have to live in some orthodox Judaic system system because you don't live in one so why are you on twitter killing each other and trying to create some sort of centralized ideology that will influence people that whose lives you may never actually interact with because you don't meet that many people if you live the life that the machine that you live within and i wouldn't use the metaphor machine usually like that you know is evolved for so like you know that i don't see it as some sort of unfolding objective force i see it as the kind of a response to centralizing an adaptive power that manipulates the you know the telos of that of that system no, exactly exactly i mean i think that i think we're both saying the same thing which is as we've said all the way through that um there are different ways of wanting to live your life mm-hmm. and there are different ways of responding to nature different belief systems whatever you want to call it mm. and those things add immeasurably to the richness of our culture they are our culture right that is what culture is mm. and so i think that what the challenge which is far too difficult so i don't i, I don't know how to do this but the challenge as we've said is to accept that those are all valid responses to the challenges of living of being human and then on top of that, there is the imperative that whatever way we find of managing all those, not even managing, it's celebrating all those different approaches to being human, whatever way it is, there's also the global view that we're all together on this uniquely, perhaps valuable rock. And so there's an overriding imperative it's, it's absolutely imperative isn't it it's, it's so important that we find a way of doing that right and it's certainly as you say you're absolutely right it's not by homogenizing it's not by trying to tell everybody this is the way that's it Feynman again it's, it's he said in his in his essay the value of science he said that if we say i think the exact words were this is it we are saved then we doom ourselves to the because it's been done so many times before, right? so many times before in history. So, so we have to, the thing we really have to protect, protect, and he uses these words, is to celebrate freedom of thought, the freedom to doubt, to, to understand that doubt is not to be feared, but welcomed and discussed, 
it's brilliant his essay and it's exactly as you said it's it's um so i think i'm in total agreement i'm not arguing for utopian solutions that they, they have a horrendous track record just because it's too hard and actually it's not even desirable as you said the the the, the wonder of our civilization is in the fact that there are many different views and ways of living uh, and and the challenge is to make sure that that is does not descend into uh, conflict Professor Brian Cox, I always feel enriched by our conversations and by your company. I love you. You are a great teacher, a wonderful man. Uh, I would recommend anyone go and see your show, and I'll put that at the top of this podcast and all. And if you're doing it at the UK, then um, are you doing it in the UK? Where are you going next? Yeah, with that, we, we get to the UK in the end of August, September. Okay. And um, so uh, in the big arenas, so it's a huge... Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, I think the O2 sold out, actually, already, but the there'll be other what we'll put other ones in in and around london i think to try and let people well, come and see it well i should certainly i would love to come and see it see one if oh you can possible yeah. thank you i'll sneak him around the back if i have to brian i'll find a way no you no, you're definitely welcome <laughs> i'll come in in, in robin ince's cardigan if that's what it is required he's got um scientifically illustrative cardigans <laughs> well that seems like a perfect disguise <laughs> a scientifically illustrative cardigan is that's my twitter bio <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Brian. That was a fantastic conversation, mate. I hope I get to see you soon. Yeah, well, I'll see you at the shows, if not before. I'll be beneath the cardigan. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Professor Brian Cox. Let me know what you thought of it. You can let me know on Instagram or Twitter or wherever you want to. Maybe I'll be on Twitter more now since Elon. What do you think? Are you pleased about all that? If you enjoyed this conversation, maybe listen to Michael Singer, a brilliant recent conversation, or Jordan Peterson, have a listen to that. Why not give yourself a variety of inputs? Also, please join me for Above the Noise, where I do a weekly guided meditation. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary.